I grew up in, a, in, in an immigrant family in a tough t- neighborhood, tough town. And I was barely out of diapers when I began to realize that the world is a hard place. It's not fair. It's not always smooth. It's a tough place. It's a hard place. We have a world that's divided. But it's not the world that God created. In our video clip, we, there's that phrase, imagine a world is no longer divided. Imagine a world of peace. That word peace is an important word. Uh, that's what I want to talk about today. There's a Hebrew word, shalom, that, that I want to unpack in the context of our, of our sermon for this morning. But what I want to say right now is that God, shalom is what God created. Shalom, a world in shalom is what God created. It's what human beings tore apart and what God is restoring in his creation. So I want to begin by talking about shalom. We translate often in our English Bibles the word peace, but peace is a weak word for what shalom really means in scripture. Shalom is far more than a peace of mind, a tranquil mind. And it's far more than an absence of conflict. Shalom refers to a wholeness. It refers to a delight. It refers to a universal flourishing in all dimensions of life. It's a flourishing. It's a delight. It's a joy that overflows. It's a love that freely goes between. It has to do with flourishing of relationship to God and to one another and to other to ourselves to the environment where all of that is the way it should be the way it ought to be the way God created it to be that's what shalom is freedom fullness joy satisfaction contentment grace mercy all of that flowing that's shalom That's the way that God created the world. When you read Genesis 2 and and you see what's there, you see a a world where there's beauty, there's bounty, there's abundance. It's a world where there's perfect order and order serves joy. It's a joyful, open, safe, intimate kind of place. Intimate in your relationship with God and with one another. It's the world where there was no shame, no guilt, no hiding, no hurting, no blaming, no lying, no fear in relationship with God and with one another. Work was fruitful. It was satisfying, soul satisfying. There was no drudgery, no frustration. It was joy in the work. So picture it. Perfect harmony, complete wholeness, absolute flourishing. That's the world that God created that we tore apart at the fall. Now God is restoring his shalom in creation. He's restoring shalom because shalom marks his character. That's the kind of God he is. That's what God wants. And he's restoring it through the cross. So uh, there's a passage, Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For God was pleased to 
have all his fullness dwell in him, to dwell in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 tells us that Christ is reconciling all things to himself. He's reconciling all things to himself. What that means is he's restoring the things that are broken that have split people apart. He's restoring the things that are broken that have put us at odds with the environment, with, our, with the creation of the world. He's restoring the things that have been broken apart in our relationship with him. He's reconciling all things to himself. All things. The brokenness, the divides, the pain, the hurt, the sorrow, the, the anger, the, all the stuff that breaks apart and divides. The racism, the prejudice, the violence, all of that he's reconciling, he's dealing with so that we can be restored and experience shalom. He's making peace, he's making shalom through his blood shed on the cross. J.R. Swihart writes, the cross not only redeems the human soul, but it also heals broken identities, renews creation, mends divided relationships, renovates and replaces unjust systems, repairs international conflicts. Peace, as defined by the cross, is the restoration of all things God is the great peacemaker, and restoration is the mission of God. It is through the cross that God in Christ is restoring shalom. But raises a question for us. If that's what God has done, God in Christ has done at the cross, why do we still live in a world that's, that's full of pain and misunderstanding and fear and hatred, and violence, and brokenness. What God did at the cross, what God in Christ, what Jesus did through his blood shed on the cross, was to establish the grounds to set in motion the process that would bring about God's shalom, God's wholeness. What Jesus did on the cross set in process of, uh, set in motion a process that is unstoppable. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. And we, where we are right now, get to experience some of it. We get to experience it in part the shalom of it. We get to experience it right now. And we get to be kind of a revelation of it to the rest of the world. So God has established communities of his people throughout the world, throughout our city, that, that kind of reflect to those around us what it is that God is in the business of doing. He's bringing about shalom, and we are part of that process. So turn with me to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 16 to 21. That's on page 818 in our pew Bibles.
So Paul is talking about what Christ has done, done for us at the cross, and he continues in verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a lot in this passage, but I'm going to try to unpack three key points. In verse 20, Paul says we are Christ's ambassadors. So what we're called to is to live as Christ's ambassadors, representing who God is and what he cares about. That's what ambassadors do. They uphold the values and represent the interests of their government. And our government is God's kingdom. We are Christ's ambassadors. We present Christ's values and interests. We love God. We love our neighbor. We love one another. We invite others to do the same. We proclaim in word and in action the message of reconciliation. And we model the reconciled life in the world and all our relationships. We forgive those who have sinned against us, who have hurt us. We love those who see themselves as our enemies. We are active in trying to restore everything that's broken to make all things right. We are Christ's ambassadors. Number one. Number two, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We see them with the eyes of Christ. Now what's a worldly point of view? A worldly point of view divides people into us and into them. It judges people on the basis of appearance and social position, color of skin, socioeconomic status, education level, family background, neighborhood where they live. It discriminates against people. It dishonors them. It denies them dignity. It denigrates them. It dehumanizes them. It does all of that to serve narrow self-interests. A worldly point of view does not see people as people, as individuals. It sees them as categories, as types, rich or poor, success or failure, right side of the tracks or wrong, saint or sinner. It sees them as us or them. A worldly point of view does not see people for who they are, made in the image of God, worthy of respect and dignity. Now, as followers of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
we must learn and we are able to learn to see humanity in the to see the humanity, the dignity, the image of God in every person and treat them with respect and honor and dignity, with grace and mercy and love. So we're Christ ambassadors who no longer see people from a worldly point of view. And then third, we share and represent God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness to the world in the conduct of our lives. We act justly, we love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. We actively join God in the wisdom and power of the Holy Spirit in the work of reconciliation and peacemaking. We are, as a community of God's people, the ongoing embodiment, the ongoing embodiment of God's restorative mission, his shalom in the here and now. That's who we are, that's what we're about, because we belong to Christ who shed his blood on the cross to bring about shalom in the, in the world, in our own lives and world as a whole. I want to talk, I want to spend a few minutes talking about righteousness and justice as it's seen in the scriptures. Now, the word righteousness, particularly as you, as you read it in the Old for a lot of us, we tend to think of it as referring to a private morality or to a religious zeal. You know, being righteous means that we, we, we're, we're, we're honest. We don't hurt other people. We keep our promises. You know, we're, we're nice to cats. We don't listen to Barry Manilow. We, you know, we, you know? Private morality. We think of it as praying a lot and giving a lot of money and uh, doing all kinds of stuff in, for God in the church. Religious zeal. But in the Bible, in the Bible, righteousness doesn't just refer to private morality or religious zeal. In the Bible, what righteousness talks about, what righteousness means is living out justice and mercy and kindness. It's an act of concern for the poor and the powerless. So Matthew 23, 23. That whole chapter is about Jesus contending with the religious leaders of his day who've gotten what it means to know and follow God. They've just gotten it completely wrong. But in verse 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices. Imagine that. A tenth of mint and dill and cumin. You, you, they, they take the time to figure out how much a tenth is. Not 11%. Not 9%, but an exact tenth. They work at that. They, take that. they invest in that. And Jesus said, instead of, instead of just investing that, you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. The more important matters of law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former, saying private morality, religious zeal, but most important, Justice and mercy and faithfulness is what God wants from his people. What Jesus is really saying is that private morality and religious zeal without active public 
Concern is no morality at all. Religious righteousness that doesn't express itself in justice and mercy is not righteousness, righteousness at all in God's eyes. So here's where we need to make a mental shift when we read our Bibles. Everywhere in the Bible where you see the word righteous, substitute the word just in your mind. Everywhere where you see the word righteousness, substitute the word justice. The righteous are the just. It is a practice of justice that makes the righteous righteous. Now, keep working with this, unpack further. I want to look at two Hebrew words. They're the words mishpat and tzedakah. Mishpat occurs in the Old Testament over 400 times. And its most basic meaning is to treat people equitably, to treat them fairly. It means to punish people for wrongdoing, but it also means to give people their rights and to help them Make, to make things right for them and with them. Now, uh, Tim Keller writes, if you look at every place the word is used, the word mishpat is used in the Old Testament, several classes of people, of persons, continually come up. Over and over again, mishpat describes taking up the cause, the care and cause of widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor those who have been called the quartet of the vulnerable. And Keller continues, any neglect shown to the needs of the members of this quartet is not merely called a lack of mercy or charity, but a violation of justice, of mishpat. I want you to take a moment, literally I mean, I want you to take a moment and ask yourself, who are the vulnerable in our culture in our neighborhood, maybe even in our extended families, who are the vulnerable? We have still widows and orphans and immigrants and the poor are vulnerable, but I also think of folks like the elderly who are left you know, languishing, wasting away in nursing homes, nobody to visit them. I think about single moms who are completely overwhelmed and they don't know how to make ends meet or how to stretch time to care for their kids. I think of... Uh, Veterans who are struggling with PTSD and nobody's looking out for them. I think about refugees who've, come, who've endured incredibly awful, horrendous stuff and they've come here looking for a place to be welcomed and they're not being welcomed all so well. I think of folks who are mentally ill. I think of kids who something's happened in their families and in a foster care system and it's not always a great system. I don't know what you thought about when you were thinking about who the vulnerable are, but whatever God, whoever God put in your mind, hold on to that. Don't let it escape because I think God may want you to do something about that. Zechariah 7, 9, and 10 says, this is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the father or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. 
All of that's mishpat. The second word, tzadikah, refers to a life of right relationship. Alec Macher, who's an Old Testament scholar, defines the righteous as those who are right with God and therefore are committed to putting right all other relationships in life. Now, all of what this means, when you think about this together, is that biblical righteousness, biblical justice, is never inevitably social. It's social. Social justice is, is justice in society. It's worked out in society. It's about relationships. It refers to day-to-day living in which a person conducts all of relationships in the family and in society with fairness, generosity, and equity. And in Scripture, these two words, tzadikah and mishpat, are often used together. So let me give you an example. This is Job, chapter, uh, chapter 29, 11 to 17. Job is making his case before God. Uh, and he's... And he's saying, whoever heard me speak well of me and those who saw me spoke well of me and those who saw me commended me because I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness, that's the word tzadikah, as my clothing. Justice, again, the word mishpat, was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. You may remember that when the book of Job opens, God refers to Job as the most righteous man on earth. No one else like him. It's because he lived his life with mishpat and tzadikah. He took care of, he looked out for, he rescued the poor and the needy and the vulnerable. So, what, so where I'm going with this is that social justice is not a political agenda. It's not a political agenda. It's not something that some political party or some revolutionary just kind of thought up out of the blue. It flows out of who God is. It's the will of God. Social justice is the will of God. God is on the side of justice. Psalm 9.16 says, the Lord, the Lord is known by his acts of justice. For the Lord is a God of justice, Isaiah 30 adds. So think about this. What this is saying is that when we, the Lord is known by his acts of justice, we know God. When we practice justice, we know God better. And as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of God, we grow in our practice of justice. God's character rubs off on us. God is a God of justice, and as we get to know him, we become a people of justice. So let me try to summarize what we've said about justice so far. Justice is doing what is right for people and righting the wrongs that have been done to people. Justice is rooted in God's character and purpose. It's in response to the inherent dignity in every person because they are all made 
in the image of God. God is a defender of the vulnerable. He upholds the cause of the oppressed. Justice is rooted in the character of God. Justice happens because individuals and systems ensure that everyone has unhindered access to the basic necessities of life, food, water, shelter, emotional and physical health, mental well-being, education, protection, and access to God and his truth. Without God, there is no justice. Without knowing God, having access to him, we can't pursue justice. Justice requires that the, that the weak are protected, that victims are compensated, and the guilty are redemptively punished, not revengefully punished, redemptively punished, restoratively punished, so that things that are wrong may be made right. And justice is what honors God. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Whoever oppresses the poor or even allows oppression of the poor to take place shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Whoever pursues justice honors God. So we've talked about the cross, we've talked about shalom, we've talked about justice. How do they come together? The bridge between the cross of Christ and the shalom of God is a practice, is, 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 is uh, uh, social justice. Shalom is the end state to which we are heading with God. It's what we're pursuing together with God by his grace and calling. But being just, doing justice is a way we pursue shalom. Justice is indispensable for shalom. There is no shalom without justice. And that's why the prophets of Israel kept again and again and again calling to the people of Israel to be just. Let justice roll down like mountain, like, like, like rivers, Amos says. Let justice roll down. They keep calling to the people because injustice gets in the way of God's shalom and it distorts God's character to the world. God is known by his acts of justice which are revealed by his people in the world. Isaiah 32, 16 and 7 makes this connection explicit. The Lord's justice will dwell in a desert. His righteousness live in the fertile field. The fruit of that righteousness will be peace. The fruit of that righteousness will be peace. So what do we do? How do we think about this? Where, how, do, how do we even begin? How do we begin doing justice? I'd say the first thing for each of us, and not just the first thing, but the daily thing, is we pray, we ask God to give us a heart of justice. We ask God, too, to help us to see people the way Jesus sees people. 
we ask also that he will help us to see where injustice is taking place. Who are the poor, the vulnerable, the mistreated, the neglected, the abused, the overwhelmed, and the oppressed in our community? We need to make this personal. It's not an abstract idea. Justice is not abstract. It's personal and it's practical. So we need to invest in relationships, even when doing so feels uncomfortable and inconvenient and hard. See, here's the thing. Being just, doing justice is always uncomfortable, inconvenient, and hard. We're dealing, we're coming alongside people who have seen the the hard things of life. We're trying to come alongside them when the devil, the very devil, wants to prevent us from doing that. Because when we do that, we reveal God. And that's not what the devil wants. It's always uncomfortable, inconvenient, and hard. But it's worth it. Because in the process, we see God in ourselves and in others. And we get carried along in a stream of God's purpose and character. We choose to love and not to fear. Jesus tells two parables. There's one parable of Good Samaritan that I'm going to come back to in a minute, where there's a guy who gets beat up, half dead on the side of the road, and a priest and a Levite, they see him, but they just walk on by. Don't just walk by people. Jesus tells another parable where there's a rich man and a poor guy who's really suffering called Lazarus. And his guy Lazarus kind of camped out on the outside of this guy's, the rich man's doorstep. And every time the rich man goes in and out of his house, he steps over this guy, but he doesn't do anything for him. Let's not be people who step over suffering people. Let's stop and do something for them. It's okay, Jeremy. I think. (laughs) Thank you. I want to conclude with this. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave a talk on April 3rd, 1968 at Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee. In that talk, he referred to things that were happening in the city. There was a sanitation worker strike. Uh, African-American black sanitation workers were striking because they were being treated unfairly. They were getting much substantially lower wages than white workers in much harsher work conditions. All kinds of things were happening. So they were on strike. There were other things, things going on. And then, but the larger context is he was talking about the work of justice in this country. And in the context of his talk, he referenced the parable of the Good Samaritan. He talked about, you know, here's this guy who's coming from the road from Jerusalem, Jericho, and he gets beat up, he gets left by the side of the road. And this uh, Pharisee comes by and uh, just keeps on walking. This, this uh, um, Levite, another religious leader, comes by and he keeps on walking. This is what, uh, and, and, and uh, Dr. King explains reasons that people have given for why they may have done it, why they just walked by. He says, well, some people think, imagine it was because they were on a road, they were going to church, and they, didn't, they couldn't stop and help this guy because they, they had to get to church. They had to get to you know, their religious duty. 
Or maybe they were going, but they didn't want to stop and help them because if they'd stopped and helped them get their hands on a dead person, they'd become ritually defiled, and you can't serve in the church if you're defiled. So they didn't, they didn't want to get their hands dirty, so to speak. Then Dr. King says, but you know what? I think, in my imagination, I think the reason they didn't stop was because they were afraid because this road from Jericho to Jordan, uh, from, from Jer- Jerusalem to Jericho, it's called the Bloody Pass. It was called the Bloody Pass because all kinds of bad things happened on that road. It's a dangerous road. And it's possible that, that maybe if, he'd, if these guys had stopped to help this guy on the side of the road, there would have been these thieves who were just kind of waiting to, to rob them as well. Or maybe the guy himself wasn't actually hurt. He was faking it so that he could rob somebody who stopped. They were afraid, Dr. King says. And this is the way he puts it. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question the Levite asked when they saw that man was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And then Dr. King said, that's the question before you tonight. Now, probably a lot of you know this, but the very next day, April 4th, 1968, in Memphis, Tennessee, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. He was shot and killed. But that day before, when he was at Mason Temple, this is how he ended his talk. He'd been, he mentioned the fact that that he'd been stabbed and there were all kinds of death threats against him, that that was the daily reality of his life. People trying to intimidate him to stop him from his work of social justice. He, he mentioned that. And then he said, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. So here's my question for us. What about us? Have we seen the glory of the coming of the Lord? Have we caught the vision of shalom that is coming, that nothing can stop? Paul writes in Romans 1.17, that the righteous or the just shall live by faith. We live by faith. 
It takes faith to be just and to do justice. May God grant us that faith. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a great God and a good God. You are a just God and you have treated us with justice, with mercy and love and grace. And we are so grateful. Lord, we're grateful that we're part of your kingdom community, your community of justice, your community of shalom, of wholeness. And so we ask this day that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit and that you would enable us to live out the calling you've placed upon our lives. Help us to be people of faith, to live by faith, to be just in all of who we are and all of what we do. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus, who made peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen.